me into your Bibles to John chapter 18. John 18. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open up your word tonight. We ask that you would speak to our hearts, that we would hear your heart, that we would see, Jesus, how much you love us and your death upon the cross, you laying your life down for us. We know that there's a real enemy that wouldn't want us to register with the message tonight. So God, would you bind Satan, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. And Father, we adore you. We thank you for your love for us and your faithfulness to us in our lives. So would you speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. What gets your attention? What is something that you focus upon? One of the things that got my attention today as I was reading the news is there was a young man in the South and he was actually executed on the electric chair at age 14. They thought that he had killed two white girls and he was in the South as an African-American man and he went to trial. They found him guilty and very quickly he went to the electric chair. Now his case is coming back to court 70 years later even though he's dead because it appears there's a great injustice. His lawyer never called any witnesses on his behalf and his lawyer never crossed examined anyone. And that stood out to me of potentially what appears to be, the verdict will come, a tremendous injustice. And as we come to the scriptures tonight, there's an injustice that we see, and it's Jesus Christ being crucified. It's the trial of Jesus Christ. And for some, this section of scripture, it's a well-worn path. We know John chapter 18, and for others, you're experiencing it for the very first time. In either case, my prayer is that our hearts would be touched by the love of Jesus Christ. So let's begin our journey in verse 1 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. If you've been studying with us, you know that for the last several weeks, we've been in chapter 14 through chapter 17. Jesus has concluded these words, what he declared to them in the upper room. The disciples are now prepared, and Jesus sets his heart to his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and resurrection. They go to a garden, which we know to be the Garden of Gethsemane. As we look through the theme of scripture, gardens are important. Where do we find sin entering into the world? The first Adam in the Garden of Eden through his disobedience, don't we? But now in the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam, Jesus is referred to in Romans as the last Adam. He redeems mankind not through his disobedience, but his submission to the Father, his obedience to the Father. We also know that the Garden of Gethsemane, it's just outside of the walls of Jerusalem, where there are olive trees. To this day, if you go to Israel, they have a good idea of the exact place where the Garden of Gethsemane was. They speculate some of the olive trees that were there when Christ walked are still there 
today. And each thing in scripture is significant because if you're familiar with Israel, you know that they export a lot of olive oil. They still to this day have a lot of olive trees. And as Jesus is in this garden with olive trees, the olives would be pressed. And as they're pressed, you have the olive oil. And Jesus is pressed, isn't he, in the garden of Gethsemane as he wrestles with the will of the Father. He prays, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He prays all night long to the point where he sweats blood. This is all happening in the garden, this garden of Gethsemane. To get to the garden, he crossed over the brook Kidron. This brook comes down from the Temple Mount as the Passover is taking place. There would be blood of the lambs mixed with the water in this brook Kidron, the Lamb of God ultimately being slain for our sins. If you look up the brook Kidron and you look at it in the Old Testament, when David was betrayed by Absalom, he walked across this same brook as he was leaving Jerusalem. So David pointing ultimately to what Jesus Christ would go through. In verse 2, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas had no doubt where Jesus would be. Jesus, this was his favorite place to pray. In his hour of turmoil and trouble, Judas knew that he would find Jesus communing with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're really pressed and you're going through a difficult time, where do your close friends know where to find you? They go, oh, I know if he's stressed, if she's stressed, they're going to be at this bar because this is their favorite bar. This is where they go when, when they're stressed. Hopefully not, right? Hopefully they go, man, I know when they're stressed, they're going to be at this place meeting with the Lord. They're going to be in their bedroom alone with God or they're going to be on their favorite walk or pulpit rock or one of these places where they go to meet with the Lord, Mueller State Park, someplace like that where you just get away and you get alone with God. That's what Judas knew about Jesus. This makes the betrayal even worse because it's in a place where Jesus had great fellowship and communion with his disciples. I know that some of you know that kind of betrayal. Possibly your spouse betrayed you in your very own home, a place of sanctuary, a place of communion and intimacy. You found them in an affair, in an adultery with someone else. Maybe a close friend that you've had great fellowship with You'd always get together maybe at the same coffee shop or the same restaurant and it's that coffee shop that they betrayed you and began to gossip about you. Some have even experienced betrayal inside of your church and your church family, a place of sanctuary and refuge where you worship the Lord, but things get messy and we do have sinners inside of church, amazing, right? And of which I'm included, right? And we've experienced hurt and betrayal even inside of the church of God. And so this was a very personal place for Jesus. It's something that we need to understand and relate to. Every betrayal that we go through, we can fellowship with Christ in his suffering. He knows betrayal as one of his very own, Judas, comes to him in this hour. In verse 3 then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Judas had gone to the chief priest, worked this agreement for money to give the location of Jesus Christ, 
Judas comes in with a detachment of troops. This is 500 troops, a portion of a legion. And he's also got lanterns and torches and weapons. Amazing that they have to come against Jesus Christ with weapons. In verse 4, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forth and said to them, whom are you seeking? Jesus doesn't hide. He doesn't run for his life. He faces them. He faces his betrayer. He simply asks the question, whom are you seeking? This is Christ surrendering his life to the will of the Father. After wrestling all night with this cup of suffering, he surrenders to it. He accepts it goes out to these men, whom are you seeking? Verse five, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. If you notice in your New King James, if you have a New King James Bible, the word, the word he is in italics. That's because it's not in the original Greek. It's added by the translators. So literally in the Greek, Jesus said, I am. And Judas, who had betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This statement of I am is one of the clearest statements of deity in the scripture. It goes back to the book of Exodus. Moses is at the burning bush. The burning bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. God speaks to Moses and reveals himself as the great I am. Throughout the book of John, we've seen the fulfillment of these I am statements. There's seven I am statements. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And now Jesus makes this final I am statement, and it's simply back to I am that I am. I am the great I am. I am God. And when he says this, bam, they fall on their backs, all of these men, Judas included, that are coming to arrest Jesus Christ. This is a clear statement that no one is able to arrest God. No one's able to bind God. That Jesus is willingly laying down his life to the slaughter. I wonder what it was like for these guys. It's a dark night. They're coming to arrest Jesus Christ. Jesus says these two simple words, I am, and then flat on their backs. They pick themselves up. Well, the action even gets greater. It gets better here as we continue to go on. In verse 7, then he asked them saying, whom are you seeking? You ask, you ask. I'm not asking. You know, I'm not going to answer this question. And they said, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Jesus answered and said, I told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let those, these go their way. He's pointing to the disciples. He's saying, if it's me that you want, then let these men go. He's thinking about the protection of the disciples, even at this very hour. In verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave, I have lost none. John's writing in reflection as he's the author of the Gospel of John, and he's thinking back to the fulfillment of the words of Christ that Jesus had told them in the upper room. You're not gonna lose any of them. I'm not gonna lose you at all. He prayed this in, in John 17. Now Jesus is fulfilling this. He's saying, guys, it's me you want, so let the rest of these men go. Christ is extremely selfless. He's perfectly selfless. Even in his moment of trial, 
he's thinking about his disciples. And it's not that these guys were the best disciples, were they? Are worthy. Because they were sleeping when they were supposed to be praying. Jesus went to them throughout this night and said, pray with me. I really need your prayer. Right now, pray lest you fall into temptation. Each time that Jesus would go back, he would find that the disciples were sleeping. As we read the gospels closely, they tell us that the disciples were sleeping because of sorrow. They were trying to process what it meant that Jesus was going to go away. They were overcome by sorrow, and they checked out. They began to sleep. Jesus still loves them. Aren't you thankful for that? When we're sleeping, when we should be praying, when we're less than what we should be, Jesus is still protecting us, and he's protecting the disciples here. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, with his Batman shirt on right here. Have you guys seen those new... Batman shirts, it seems like those have caught on in the last couple months. So here's Simon Peter. He's going to be superhero. He's got a sword, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, first of all, this is probably the wrong guy to cut off his ear. This is the servant to the high priest. It'd be nice if it was just kind of a footman soldier, right? Just kind of a no name. But this is the high priest servant. He goes back to the high priest. What happened to your ear? Well, I just had a little slip in the shower and it got lopped off. You know, no, no big deal. This story is going to get out about Peter. Peter was not a soldier. He was a fisherman. I don't think that Peter was going for the ear. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He was going for his head and he missed and all he got was an ear. How does he get to this place? Well, we have to remember that just prior to this, Jesus said, hey, I want you to get a sword. It's time for you to get a sword. And so this is in the back of Peter's mind. Why would you need a sword? To defend yourself and defend your savior. Jesus had told Peter that before this night was done, he was gonna deny him three times. And Peter's like, not in your life. I think Peter's trying to prove himself. He really felt deep down, I'm going to lay down my life for Christ and nobody's taking my savior. He's extremely loyal to Jesus Christ. It's almost a sense if someone came in to hurt one of your parents or hurt one of your children, you're like, hey, wait a second, I'm going to get out my sword here and I'm going to protect my family. I think that's the heart and the motivation of Peter. He's trying to prove himself, but he is misguided. And why is he misguided? Because he was sleeping when he was supposed to be praying. He would have caught something if he stayed up and prayed with Christ and he listened to Christ. But when he neglected to pray, he fell into temptation. He wasn't ready for this moment that was going to come upon him. He was prideful. He thought he had this all under control in and of himself. Sometimes we get this way. We're well-meaning, we get the word of God, and we're going to take action, and we start swinging both ways. Before we know it, there's an ear that needs to be picked up, don't we? We had the right idea, we even had the truth of God's word, but we didn't apply it in the right way. Again, our gracious Savior, what does he do? He reaches down, he picks up this bloody ear, maybe examines it for a moment, back on Malchus's ear, Wow, better than ever. I often wonder what happened to Malchus. Did he ever come to be a believer in Jesus Christ? Scripture doesn't tell us one way or the other. Christ is crucified. Christ rises from the dead. He looks in the mirror. 
I remember what happened that night in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. If it wasn't for Christ intervening and being gracious on Peter's behalf, there probably would have been four crosses on Mount Calvary. You know what I'm saying? Jesus, the two criminals, and Peter. This is not looking good for Peter at this moment until Christ heals him. We know from Luke's gospel that Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Hey, this is of the Father. Being arrested, being crucified, this is the Father's plan. I'm drinking of the cup, so put the sword away. I wrestled with this question, I still do. What's in my hand, a sword or a cup? Jesus, the Savior of the world, he comes with the cup of obedience. He comes with the cup of suffering. Peter, as the warrior, the prideful warrior, he comes with a sword. May we have the cup of surrender. Verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The only thing that's binding Jesus at this point is love. Agreed? These guys have no power. It's already been seen by two simple words. They were flat on their back. The only way that Christ is going to be arrested is his willingly laying down his life. Verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. The Romans really married with the Jewish people in their occupation. They dictated the high priest, and they wanted the high priest to rotate in terms, kind of like we do with our president, but it's the choice of the Roman government. And that wasn't the way that God had set up the high priest in the Old Testament, and that's why you see many high priests during the time of Christ. And Annas, it says he was led away first to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And history tells us that Annas was the one who was really the powerhouse behind this. Even though Caiaphas is the current high priest, Ananias had been the high priest, and he's the father-in-law, and we all know the father-in-law holds the cards, right? <laughs> I'm being a little sarcastic there, but it may be true in your case. That was definitely the case with Annas. He was a very wicked man, and he desired the death of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas had given this prophecy that it was beneficial for one person to die for the people. He was prophesying about Christ, and he didn't even know it. God can speak through anything, anyone, anytime, any way that he desires. The focus now goes back onto Simon Peter. So if you think about this as a stage, John 18 as a stage, Jesus is the center stage. But you also have these other characters, and one is Simon Peter. This is a very defining moment in his life. Another is Judas as he betrays Jesus Christ. Then as we get a little further on in the study tonight, we'll see Pilate. So those are the main characters as this chapter develops. Verse 15, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now the disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, verse 58, tells us that Peter followed from a distance. He followed from a distance. 
So as we're looking at the dominoes fall in Peter's life, there was a profession of pride, wasn't there? Even if these betray you, I will never betray you. Then he slept when he was supposed to be praying. Now he's following from a distance. And it's significant in our lives when we start to follow Jesus from a distance. We just don't press in like we once did. I'm so encouraged that you're here on a Wednesday night to seek the Lord in the midst of a busy week to draw near to him. And we want to monitor things in our life. We want to monitor our heart, keep our heart, examine, am I starting to follow Jesus Christ at a distance? John is also here in verse 15. He's the other disciple. He was known by the high priest due to the fact that he was known is how he got into the courtyard. The disciple John's the only disciple that's at the trial of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ as well. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went up and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So by John's recommendation, Peter gets into the courtyard. Verse 17, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Number one. Jesus said three times, you're going to deny me. This was absolutely not on the radar for Peter. No question. He would never deny the Lord. If there's one thing that's certain in Peter's life, it's this commitment to Jesus Christ. But now things are spinning out of control. Can you imagine? A night sleeping out in the Garden of Gethsemane, watching your Lord and Savior be arrested. You go for the head, you get an ear. Now you're following at a distance. His life's on the line. If he says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, he possibly could be killed as well. What does he decide to do? I'm not a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna deny Christ. Before we are too hard on Peter, we don't know for sure how we would react in these kind of situations. We'd like to think, oh, we would step up and we would do the right thing, but that may not be the case. He says, I'm not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So not only is he following at a distance, but now he's at the enemy's fire. It's cold. They're warming themselves by these coals, and Peter decides, I'm going to go warm myself as well. Easy to do. We can see why he did it, but not necessarily wise. This is the group that's wanting to crucify Jesus. You don't want to huddle around the campfire with people that are rejecting Jesus Christ. But when things start to get out of alignment in our lives, it's very easy for us to drift from Christ, to follow from a distance. Then we start going to the world's fires. And what I mean is non-believers source of comfort. People that reject Christ, they're very quick to say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe even antagonistic to Jesus Christ. Where we should go when we're struggling is into the presence of God and with the people of God. Let me say that again. When we're struggling, because we're going to struggle like Peter struggles, we can learn from his experience is go to the presence of God and go to the people of God, but that's the last place we want to go. Our flesh says, well, I'm just going to go downtown I'm going to hang out at the bar. I'm going to warm up by the enemy's fire. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've seen it as a pastor is someone drifts from fellowship. They drift from being with the people of God. And before you know it, it's, hey, I'm hanging out late, one, two in the morning, dancing, drinking, having a good time, and doing all these things. And then before you know it, it's led to absolute destruction. Or one that seems not quite as destructive is they start to live for their job. And you go, where's so-and-so? Oh, they're working a lot. Working 70 hours, 80 hours, too busy to be with the people of God, too busy to seek out a relationship with God. They're warming themselves by the enemy's fire. It's the security of a job. Now, there's nothing wrong with a job, but what if you're running to that job to be your comfort in a time of difficulty? You gotta run to Christ. You gotta run to him. Sometimes it's someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse, who's not a believer, and it just feels so good to tell them about all my woes. Before you know it, find themselves in a place that they never thought they would be. Peter, it doesn't get better than Peter. I don't think you find a more passionate heart for Jesus Christ as Peter. If Peter can be at the enemy's campfire, so can we. That's the lesson of Peter's life. If we think we're above something, if we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. Don't warm yourself by the enemy's fire. In verse 19, then the high priest, then the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered and said, I spoke openly to the world. I also taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met. And in secret, I've said nothing. This intrigued me. Jesus spoke openly. He didn't speak privately. And there's a debate that's happening right now in Christian circles of how should we share truth. And some are saying you shouldn't speak openly because it's counterproductive. You should simply seek, speak in secret and private about the things of Christ. And I think that it's worthwhile to have a relationship with people. I think that truth is received best through relationship. But don't be confused. Jesus spoke openly. There was nothing private about his message. Everyone knew what he stood for. Everyone knew what he was saying and he was proclaiming. He wasn't mincing words or saying, well, I'm going to hide the truth over here so that I could reach people. He loved people, he cared for people, but at the same time, in his love for them, he was open and honest about the truth. And maybe you're wrestling with that a little bit. You're saying, should I be open with the truth of God or should I hold it in secret? Well, Jesus, out of his own mouth, says that he spoke it openly. He spoke it in all of these dangerous places where it was not well received. In verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, And what I said to them, indeed, they know what I said. This is a wise answer. Why don't you ask those who have heard me teach? And they'll tell you about my doctrine. Verse 22. And when they'd said these things, one of the officers stood up, who stood by, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like this? And my question to this officer would be, do you know that you just struck the Son of God in the face, you know? Do you know that you just struck the creator of the universe in the face? You just backhanded him in the face. Here he is standing up for the high priest, and he's slapping the Son of God. 
Verse 23, Jesus answered him and said, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Oh, the meekness of Christ, the self-control of Christ. As he's slapped in the face, he simply responds in absolute self-control, power under control, says, if I've spoken evil, why don't you just let me know? If there was a reason for that slap, that rebuke, just, just go ahead and let me know. Truly a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 22. And when he said these things, or excuse me, verse 23, Jesus answered him and said, excuse me, verse 24. <laughs> I'm on a roll. <laughs> then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. It's going through this course of trial. It's going from Annas to Caiaphas, then to Pilate. Let's pay attention to the detail as we go through this because it's not simply the trial with the Romans. He was first tried by Annas, then Caiaphas, then Pilate. He goes through three different trials here. In verse 25, Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples. He denied it and said, I am not number two. As he's hanging out at the enemy's fire, hey, aren't you from the Sea of Galilee region? You talk like you're from up north. Aren't you one of his disciples? It's kind of like when you're conversing with a Texan. You're like, you know, you're, you're a Texan, aren't you? We had to fly through Texas to get to Chihuahua. I do say we had to fly through Texas to get through Chihuahua. I'm just having fun. But there was Texans in the airport. And you know that they're, they're Texans because they've got an accent, right? And it's the same way with the Sea of Galilee and this region. They're saying, aren't you one of his disciples? I am not. In verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? This gets a little more personal. Bro, you just cut off my cousin's ear. I know it was you, you know? <laughs> there is no hiding. You just went after my boy there. And Peter then denied again, and immediately the rooster crowed as the sun is rising, and Peter hears the sound of the, the rooster crowing. The rooster, it symbolizes a new day. And this would be a new day where Jesus dies for the sins of Peter. The other gospels give us some more indication of what's happening. Matthew tells us at this point, Peter began to curse and say that he never knew Christ. He got more emphatic. It's like someone saying, hey, didn't you hit that person on Academy Boulevard? Don't you drive that, that red car? No, no, that, that wasn't me. No, didn't. I'm sure it was you. Weren't you there at this time? And this, this, no, 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 it wasn't me. And they ask you a third time, you might really start losing your temper. Peter seems to be getting more and more scared, more and more irritated, more and more frustrated. And now he's using profanity to be emphatic on the fact that he doesn't know Christ. Then he hears the rooster crow. Luke's gospel tells us as Jesus is on trial, they're in this courtyard and he looks right over at Peter when the rooster crows. Jesus remembers what he told Peter. Peter remembers what Christ had told him. 
And Peter begins to weep. He realizes at this point what he's done to his Lord and Savior. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a humbling place to be as a believer, to do something you never thought you would do. For whatever reason, whether it's pride or legalism or arrogance, we can put ourselves on this pedestal saying, I'm better than this. I wouldn't do this. And then God has a way of humbling us and all of a sudden we find ourselves doing what we never thought we would do. This is the most important point in Peter's life because he's broken of his pride. And before God can use him greatly, he has to be humbled. God doesn't want a prideful leader marching around in his own arrogance. He wants a humble man that realizes his own depravity, that trusts in the grace and the wisdom of God. The good news of this text is that Jesus goes to the cross for Peter at his worst. And that's our Savior. He loves us when we're at our worst. Even as a believer, when we fall short, Christ goes and dies on the cross for us. As we'll continue in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to come to Peter and restore him. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. The Praetorium would be where the general would set up his residence. When a general would be out fighting a battle, his tent would be called the Praetorium, and this morphed into being his palace, this term, the Praetorium. It was a place where judgment would be given. It's a place where Pilate lived, and also he reigned as the governor of Judah. And it was early morning, but they themselves didn't go into the Praetorium lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. What? These guys won't go in to Pilate's palace because they're worried about being ceremonially unclean, then not being able to participate in the Passover feast. Yet they're killing Jesus Christ. They're hung up on ceremonial law. This is kind of like, I gotta make sure I get up and do my devotions this morning while I'm murdering somebody. You know, it's like, well, I'm glad you did your devotions today. You know, it just doesn't make any sense, right? And these guys are all holier than thou, like, don't go in there. There's a bunch of sinners in there. And here they are killing Jesus Christ. How do they get to this place? They're focused on the outward while neglecting the inward. And by doing these outward things, they justified themselves and never dealt with the murder that was inside of their heart toward Christ. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? A logical question. Why is this man before me? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him up to you. That is no answer at all. They asked a very direct question. Pilate asked a direct question. Why do you bring this man? And no response. Just, well, he's an evildoer. What exactly did he do? And they're saying, well, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. But they don't lay out an accusation against Christ. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. If you look at the Old Testament in the law, when God gave it to Israel, he did give capital punishment, didn't he? But Israel had lost the ability to practice capital punishment to have someone put to death because of the Roman occupation. 
The only way that Christ could be executed was through the rule of Rome, through the rule of Pilate. So they're coming back to Pilate saying, we need you in order to put him to death. This was purposeful according to the plan of God in verse 32. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus said he would be crucified. Point blank, I'm going to be crucified. This has a deep root in Bible prophecy, the method in which Christ would be crucified. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that anyone who hangs upon the tree is cursed by God. Jesus was cursed. He became a curse for us so that we could receive forgiveness. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Even back in Deuteronomy 21, God's laying the groundwork for Jesus not to be stoned. That's how the Jews put people to death. But the Romans, they crucified people. They were the masters at torture with crucifixion. Psalms 22, as you read it, very accurately describes, depicts crucifixion long before crucifixion was ever invented. Then by the very words of Jesus Christ, it wasn't that he was to be stoned, he was to be crucified for our sins. His blood was to be shed for us so that we could have forgiveness. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Great question from Christ. Did these guys over here put you up to this? Are these your own words? Or is this your own question? Do you really want to know if I'm the king of the Jews? Verse 35. Pilate answered, I am a Jew, your own nation. Am am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? This is the classic sidestep. <laughs> Jesus says, do you want to know? On your own volition? On your own choice? And he simply responds by saying, am I a Jew? No, I, I'm not. It was your nation, your chief priests that have delivered you to me. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. We need to be reminded of this. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. If it were, the disciples would have fought. There would have been revolution at the arrest of Jesus Christ, but it's not of this world. Jesus came to give us eternal life. And gang, it's eternal life that we look forward to. We kind of have this perception of life. If you don't get to do it all in this life, somehow you've missed out. And that was never the message of Christ. His was, don't sweat it. You're going to get to do it in eternity. (laughs) And sometimes people think that heaven's going to be boring. But this life is just a little taste of what heaven's going to be like. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. He's going to give us responsibilities to do. So many places in describing the kingdom of God in heaven, there's food. Yeah. And a lot of people's bucket lists is go to all these places and experience all this great food. Well, if you never make it to Italy and experience their food, don't worry about it. You're going to experience even better when you get to heaven. Amen? And in the kingdom of God. 
a man wrote a book about a hundred things that you have to do before you die. Because his idea is life is short, so you've got to cram as much exciting stuff as you can into this life. So he ran with bulls in Spain and did all this exotic stuff. But the sad part is, is he slipped and fell and died at age 47 in his house. And he didn't get anywhere close to the hundred things that he had set out in his very own book. See, life is short and God never intended it to, well, go do all these amazing things. And if you, if you don't do them, somehow you missed out. Don't get me wrong. Enjoy life and enjoy every opportunity that God gives for his glory. But if you don't get to do some of the things that you want to do now, guess what? You're going to get to more than do it when you get to go to heaven. His kingdom is not of this world. We don't live for this world. We live for eternal life. We live for sharing Christ with as many people as possible. In verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, are you the king then? Jesus answered and said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. So if you're wondering, why was Jesus born? And for this cause I came into the world. If you're wondering, why did Jesus come into the world? that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears me. Jesus' mission in life was to proclaim the truth of God, to proclaim the truth of the Father, to bear witness of that truth. And everyone who is of him hears his voice, responds to the shepherd, responds to the truth that Christ brings. Peter said, or excuse me, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. It's hard to know the tone in which Pilate spoke, but it appears to be sarcastic. When Jesus says, I've come to proclaim truth, to be the manifestation of truth, and Pilate responds, well, what is truth anyway? There is, there is no truth. Come on. Very much the attitude of, culture today. I don't know that people are really asking the question and wanting to know a legitimate answer, is there truth? It's more of just a mocking statement that there is no truth, so you can do whatever you want or simply be well intending. Jesus backed this up that he is the truth, the absolute truth, the only way for salvation because he predicted his death the means that he would die, his crucifixion. But even more importantly, he predicted his resurrection, didn't he? Right on time, three days later, I'm gonna rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he'd be a liar or a lunatic. We see this argument that has been so articulated by Josh McDowell. And every evidence demands a verdict. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, he's a crazy man. He's a liar. He's a lunatic. But if he did rise from the dead, he's Lord and there is absolute truth. If you're wrestling with, is there truth? What is there truth? And with a genuine heart, look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. It's historical. It's biblical. We know that he indeed, indeed did rise from the dead, backing up his claim to be truth. At the end of verse 38, it says that I find no fault in him. Pilate, who would order his execution, said from his own mouth that this is an innocent man. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice for our sin. Verse 38, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want 
me to release to you the king of the Jews. Pilate in his heart knew that Jesus was innocent. He wanted to let Jesus go, but he also wanted to please the Jews. He didn't want the Jews to revolt against him. So he makes a suggestion. All right, it's Passover. You always get one free prisoner at Passover. How about the king of the Jews? How about Jesus Christ? Then they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. What happened to all the voices that were crying Hosanna, Hosanna a week earlier at the triumphal entry when Jesus came into Jerusalem? They're gone. They're they're not there. They've changed their mind. Now they're saying, crucify him, crucify him, give me Barabbas, because they realized Jesus was not going to deliver them from the Romans. My mind is blown by what we'll take in substitute of Jesus Christ once we reject him. They want a criminal. They want a murderer. They want Barabbas instead of Jesus Christ, God's son, God in human flesh, love incarnate. And when someone does reject Jesus Christ and they say, I don't want Jesus Christ. Christ has disappointed me. I thought he was going to do this in my life. But instead, it's this. And they say they leave Christ. It's amazing what they'll take in substitute of Jesus Christ. A couple lessons tonight as we close. And the first is this. Is see the love of God. May it get your attention and captivate our hearts again tonight. That God loved you enough to surrender his life upon the cross. He willingly laid it down. He's the great I am. He only had to speak those words. The soldiers coming, 500 men all fell flat upon their back. God in his love for us laid his life down. In our failures, before we knew Christ, Jesus went and died for us. Our failures as a Christian... Wouldn't it be nice if our failure stopped the moment that we got saved? That'd be great. It doesn't go that way, does it? We fail just like Peter. We have our own story. We could put ourselves into John 18 and know that God goes to the cross for us at those points. He dies for our sin. He rises again to extend forgiveness to us. Learn from Peter. May we learn from Peter experiences the best teacher, but why does it have to be our experience? If you kind of have this chip on your shoulder tonight, it goes, you know, I wish people could follow Christ like me. I wish they could pray like me, be dedicated like me. In fact, I've been doing the two-year-old's ministry here at this church for a long time, and there's a bunch of lazy slackers that have never signed up to change any diapers with the two-year-olds, and you know, I'm going to be there at prayer and fasting. You can count on it, and if people would just get their act together and they'd start praying more, then there'd really be hope for America. You know? <laughs> what's, what's wrong with these people around here? Be careful. That was Peter. Peter really thought he was a step above the other disciples. And yet he finds himself falling in a way far worse than the others, except for, for Judas. Watch that pride. Look out when God says, I want you to pray, and we push that leading off. Be careful if we start following from a distance, if we're by the the enemy's fire. It's a great lesson here. And we can choose to humble ourselves and say, Lord, forgive me. I know my own depravity. I know that I'm fallen, and I am in this place, and would you help me?
And so either way, in either place that you find yourself absolutely humbled or completely prideful, there's a lot to learn in Peter's story, in Peter's experience. But may we not lose center stage. And what's center stage that gets our attention? The Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Amen? So let's stand and pray together.